Well, as some of you know, we're in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes, which we began last week. And we're moving on to chapter two this week, Ecclesiastes chapter two. So if you have your Bibles there, it'll be helpful for you to follow along or you can have you can use the pew Bible that's there in front of you. Ecclesiastes two. And it's on page five fifty three of your pew Bible. And we're going to read the first eleven verses in this second chapter. So let's stand together as we read God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter two, verse one. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what is good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You may be seated. Let's take a few minutes to reflect together on God's word. And again, it's helpful as we preach through the books of the Bible here to, to help help you to have an understanding of these books as a whole, to have your Bibles there open in front of you so you can uh, take notes or note something that you have a sense that the, the Holy Spirit's working on your heart specifically this morning. This uh, passage or this book, Ecclesiastes, falls in one of the five sections of the Old Testament. And the third of those five segments is called the wisdom literature. So there's five books in the wisdom literature, beginning with Job and going through and including Ecclesiastes. And the purpose of Old Testament wisdom literature is to help you learn to live with skill in this world. That's the basic idea of wisdom literature. How do you live in this world? How do you live horizontally in this world with skill before God and before mankind? And there's wisdom literature that comes in and comes sort of like a guardrail alongside you to say, yeah, this is the best way to think about this issue. 
And so the, the Lord provides graciously his wisdom for us. And if there's one big takeaway from the book of Ecclesiastes is that there's there's no purpose of living with skill in this world if this world is all there is. I mean, why do you need to live with skill in this world if this is all there is? And the, the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, or in chapter 1, Koheleth, the Hebrew word for the preacher or teacher, he's saying, yeah, I want you to live with skill, but if, that, if this world is all there is, then, then skill really doesn't matter. In fact, he says his big question in chapter 1, verse 3, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's his big question. We're here, we're all working at something, and you're toiling. And his question is, when it's all said and done, what gain is it? And he gives you the answer before he even asks his question. His answer comes in verse 2, it's vanity. It's, it's meaningless. It's, it's a mist. It seems like it has some substance. It seems like it's, it's real, but it's like a fog. You, when you see it from a distance, it looks imposing. But when you get to it and you try to grasp hold of it, it's just it's vanity. If, if this life is all there is, if we're living in a closed system, if there's nothing beyond the boundaries of our universe, then living with skill in this world is meaningless. And then the preacher in chapter 1, as we saw last week, verse 11 the preacher concludes his opening poem by saying that, that your life is so, so brief. It's, it's going by so quickly. Generations come and generations go, he says. The generations, they, they splash on shore, the shore of, of the timeline and they stretch out trying to make their mark to say, we're going to be this kind of generation. We're going to make this kind of mark. And they stretch out like a wave might stretch out on the sand, but then just as quickly retract. And then they're just replaced by another one that does the same thing and replaced by another. And then you actually don't remember the last one anymore. He says there's really no remembrance of the generations that have gone by. And even the generations to come, there's not going to be any remembrance of them. And the way the preacher outlines the rest of his letter, I'm assuming that he's anticipating some, some, some substantial pushback to his conclusion. He said right in the very beginning, hey, this is my premise. Vanity of vanity. It's all this work, all this toil. It's, it's vanity under the sun. And he's expecting all this pushback from his congregation. So the most, most of the rest of the letter, he's basically saying, hey, I'm going to try to defend my conclusion. I'm going to put my conclusion to the test over and over and over again so that you, the congregation, you come to the same conclusion that I come to. That if all there is is life under the sun, then all that we do, no matter how meaningful it may seem at any moment, it's vanity. It's meaningless. And this first test we see here in chapter two is personal pleasure. Oh, what a what a test. I mean, surely there's meaning and value and substance in, in, in enjoying the life and in having the things that cause personal pleasure. 
And his first his first step towards defending his conclusion is he's going to answer the skeptic who falsely believes that there's there's some meaning, there's some satisfaction in personal pleasure alone. So for a season, the preacher lived by this motto. Look at chapter two, verse 10. Here's his motto. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep them. I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. That's his motto. I mean, for a a book that was written 3,000 years ago, that sounds pretty contemporary, does it not? I mean, you might say that's, that's our culture's motto. I'm keeping from myself no pleasure. Whatever my heart desires, then I'm going to go for it. I'm just going to do that that causes me the greatest amount of pleasure. The first question in the Westminster Confession of Faith, you remember what it is? What is the chief end of man? And the answer, to, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Well, what if you'd ask Koheleth, the preacher, the teacher, hey, what's your chief end? Uh, to glorify myself and enjoy myself forever. That's probably how he would have said it. That's, my, that's everything I'm doing, whatever my heart desires, whatever I feel, feel like is good for myself, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to grab those things and I'm going to try to enjoy myself forever. That's what life is really all about. And so in an effort to find real meaning and satisfaction in life, he decides to embrace the world and all, his, all, of, its, all of its pleasures And like the immortal words of the 80s rock band, The Cars, four or five of you might remember that great rock band in the 80s. Remember their song, Let the Good Times Roll? That's his motto. He's got that blaring out of the base of his car. And he's running on the Let the Good Times Roll tour. He's reaching out for all the pleasures of the world. And let's look at the first Part of this, verse 2, laughter or entertainment. I said of laughter, I'm, I'm looking at laughter, I'm looking at pleasure, I'm looking at entertainment. And in verse 8, you get a kind of a sense of what he's after. I, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures. I got singers, both men and women. I got concubines. I got whatever would be the delight of the children of men. He's his chest is his chest are overflowing with gold and silver. He's encircled by beautiful women. He's entertained by the best musicians. He's the envy of everyone in attendance. And you could hear people on his guest list saying he's got it made. It's just an endless party for this guy. It's it's unending laughter. I, I sure wish I could get to where he is. I was listening to a radio station and the the ad for the radio station here locally is where every day is a vacation from reality. You turn on, I don't I don't remember what station it was, but you turn it on and when you're on 94.5 or whatever it was. You're 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 on a vacation from reality. That's that's this guy's motto. He's on a permanent vacation from reality. He's trying to block out all the things that are difficult and only accept all the things that are pleasurable. But yet then you see his conclusion. 
Then I considered it all. I, I, I got all those things and I sat back, back and I looked at all the things my hands had done, all the toil I expended it. And then behold, I, I made this conclusion. It's vanity. It's a, it's a striving after the wind. At, at the end of the entertainment rainbow is not a pot of gold. It's emptiness. And he slides down the rainbow thinking, now, this is real life. And he gets there and it's, it's vanity. It's meaningless. Neil Postman, a few of you will remember his book. It was a landmark book written in 1985 called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in the book, Postman makes a case for the future of our society. And what he does is, very interestingly, he looks at the book uh, 1984. Some of you remember you had to read that in your 11th grade English class. Uh, and so George Orwell, he wrote this book, 1984, and the, sort of the conclusion of his book was that it would be state-controlled. There would be sort of this oppressive or authoritative government that would come down and control us. And he looked at that and said, I don't think that, Neil Postman looked at that book and I said, I don't think, said, I don't think that's going to be our future as much as Aldous Huxley's vision in his book, A Brave New World. So he's looking at those two pieces of literature. He's writing his own conclusion in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And Postman argues that the public will not be oppressed by the state. That's Orwell's vision. Instead, the public will be oppressed by their addiction to amusement. Now, I want to just read a couple of paragraphs here and just think this was written 30 years ago now. And here's what Postman concludes. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book for there, there would be no one who had wanted to read one. Orwell feared the truth would be concealed for us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become cap be a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. Orwell concluded people will be controlled by inflicting pain. Huxley concluded people will be controlled by inflicting pleasure. Huxley stated, those who fear state control, listen to this, have failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distraction. I mean, does this not sound like Ecclesiastes chapter 2? Last, last sentence. Everything has prepared us to know. This is, this is uh, Postman speaking. Everything has prepared us to know and resist a prison when the gates begin to close in around us. But what if there are no cries of anguish to be heard? Who is prepared to take arms against a sea of amusements? What is the antidote to a culture being drained by Laughter. See, see, Postman's conclusion was that we're just entertaining ourselves to death. We're just like the man in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We've sucked up all this entertainment thinking, well, that's going to be it. We're drowning in a sea of irrelevance. And Koheleth, the preacher, would have read Postman's book and said, yeah, nothing new underneath the sun. <laughs> I could have told you that 3,000 years ago. I wrote that book, Postman. It's called Ecclesiastes. You could have read it and just gotten your own conclusions from that. 
exactly what he's talking about. It's it's vanity. So the next part of the test, verse three, chapter two, verse three, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. If entertainment alone isn't enough, what needs to be added to the party? Wine. I mean, we're just not having enough fun just by ourselves. We've got to ramp it up. We've got to take something that's going to, to, to bring this party to the next level. We're going to use whatever substance or pill that will anesthetize us from any pain in the world. And somehow the beer commercials, they've got this right. I mean, gosh, the guys that write the slogans for the beer commercials, they understand Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I don't know if they're regularly reading their Bibles when they're doing these ad proposals, but they get it down. There's an old beer commercial that said, it doesn't get any better than this. I mean, once you've got this, then, then you've arrived. You've got your hands around real life. You can't add anything to your life when you've got this can of beer in your hands. Or a much older commercial, you only grow around once in life, so grab for all the gusto you can get. I mean, it it is. It's so brief. So why wouldn't you just reach out there and and get gusto? What's gusto? I mean, that's what I... I kept thinking, I, I don't need to spend a lot of time on this. I'm in my study, and there are more important Hebrew words in the text, but I'm thinking, what's gusto? I got gusto. I mean, that just reminded me of fog or mist. I, hey, I got gusto. Well, can you show it to me? Yeah, I don't. I mean, I thought I had gusto. I mean, but wait, you see, it's just the same thing. You, you reach out there, and you're, you're grabbing for something, that has a, a name, but when you hold it, it doesn't have any substance. It's, it's vanity. It's exactly what Ecclesiastes is telling us. I think the, the preacher here might claim uh, plagiarism by the beer commercials. Next stop on the Let the Good Times Roll tour, verses 4 through 6, work. Uh, the preacher was as gifted intellectually as he was monetarily. And so he puts his intellect and his money to work, and, and he does it in almost a godlike fashion. Let's just listen to these, these verses. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of the growing trees. I bought male and female slaves who were born in my house. Next stop is is work. The projects were so enormous in scope that only a great man would possibly even undertake them. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, he says this, Koheleth creates a little world within a world. A secular garden of Eden with no forbidden fruit. See, almost with godlike creativity, this man has so much wisdom, so much intellect, so much money that with, with almost a godlike creativity, he creates, he recreates this world within a world and he rules over it. Except for in his world, there's no forbidden fruit. 
Notice the maximum use here in these verses of the personal pronouns. I mean, I don't think he can squeeze any more in here. I made, I built for myself, I made myself, I made myself. I mean, just this repetition in these few verses. And, and when he can't get enough done by himself, he buys other people who gets things done for himself. Entertainment, wine, work. What's left that would make the Good Times tour complete? No surprise. Wealth and women. Verse 8, 7 and 8. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. To get a picture of the way the writer, who's probably Solomon, lived, it's hard to describe, so it's better to go back and see how the Bible described how Solomon lived. And I just want to read you several sentences from 1 Kings chapter 10 and 11. This is talking about Solomon. Then the king made a great throne inlaid with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps. On both sides of the seat were armrests with a lion standing on each side of them. And then twelve lions stood on the six steps, one at each of the ends. Nothing like it had ever been made for any other kingdom. All King Solomon's goblets were gold, and all the household articles in the palace were gold. And nothing was made of silver, because silver was considered of such little value in Solomon's day. Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all other kings of the earth. The whole world sought an audience with Solomon. Solomon also loved many foreign women. Now, this is hard to imagine, but he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. God had given Wisdom and wealth to Solomon beyond measure. And this is how he spent his treasure. Philip Ryken writes this. The erotic luxury of this vast harem was the royal icing on the cake of his pleasure. Wine, work, women, wealth. I mean, the preacher had it all. If he were alive today, he'd be uh, on the cover of Forbes and Fortune magazine every month. Everybody waiting for this man to speak. What's the next move? Oh, wish we could be like him. TMZ would show up to his birthday parties. Right? And they'd try to get their cameras in to see. You know who TMZ is? I mean, I'm only speaking to three people. You know, the people that come in and really irritate you if you're a superstar. I do not have them regularly at my home. But they come and they say, what's going on in there? We want to find out what's happening in there. They're going to show the singers that are around. They're going to show this man sitting in the center and, and surrounded. Are there going to be these supermodels? And if he were alive today, for the most part, our culture would drool and say, oh, if I could just be like him. He's what everybody's reaching for. Everybody would want to say, gosh, if I could just get a shot at, at that kind of life. And what's the result? Chapter 2, verse 11. 
Then I considered it all, and behold, it's vanity. It's a striving after the wind. Verse 18. I hated all my toil. Verse 20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. What's the conclusion? Meaninglessness, vanity, despair, hatred. The very thing this man thought was going to bring meaning actually does the opposite. Some of you are probably familiar with the name Philip Seymour Hoffman. Hoffman was a prolific actor, very accomplished. He won numerous awards, and in 2006, he won an Oscar. Four months ago in February, Hoffman failed to pick up his three children at an appointment. And so with some concern, they went back to his $10,000 a month rented New York City apartment. Found him lying on his bathroom floor in boxers and a T-shirt. And in his arm was a needle. And on the bathroom floor were bags of heroin. And he was dead. Age 46. In what's now a kind of a haunting quote. In the year before 2013, he gave an interview. This is what he said. There is no pleasure that I haven't actually made myself sick on. I've tried every pleasure until I'm sick. See, if, if all there is is what's under the sun, if there isn't something or someone bigger, then, then the one who had it all, the preacher, the one who came to the end of the Good Times Roll tour, he says it terminates in vanity, hatred, and despair, and sometimes even death. The, 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 the ending of the story of, of the preacher, this, this I've, I've reached out to grab everything and I, I've ended up thinking, this is just vanity. It kind of has a New Testament ring to a New Testament story. What parable has this same sort of feel? Remember the prodigal son? He's given half his inheritance while he's a young man. And what does he do? He goes and squanders it in wild living, just like the preacher did. And what does it terminate in? A pig pen. See, it's the same thing. It's the same story. That you can have all these things that the world says, this is what you've got to have to really have meaning, to have life, to have fulfillment. And the preacher is already telling us, I tried all those things and it just terminates in despair. But, but for the preacher, the terminal of despair is not intended to be the last stop. He's using despair. He's trying to bring you to this point to say, see, this is this is going to end in despair if this is your last stop. But there is another stop. He's trying to demolish all false hopes and trying to rebuild on an eternal foundation. He's he's saying 
It's only when you pretend that created things can bring ultimate pleasure. It's only when you stop pretending that those things can bring great pleasure. Then you can begin to look at the creator. And so let's look at his conclusion in verse 24 through 26. There's nothing better. Here's his conclusion. Chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find his enjoyment in his toil. Hmm. There's nothing better for a person that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in his toil or in his work. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. See, there's nothing better than to enjoy wine, work, wealth, and sex. I want to make sure you heard me say that because you might be a little confused. There's nothing better than to enjoy wine, work, wealth, and sex. Notice that the preacher doesn't say, no, when you get connected to God, we're going to take all those things away. No, he says, all those things are gifts of God. The problem is you're trying to have those gifts apart from God. That's the big problem. It's not these issues that are the problem. The issues are they become a God to you. And you've lived in this circle, wine, wealth, sex, and women, apart from God. And when you live in your life in that way, apart from God, then it's meaningless. But if we bring God into those, those equations, if we live inside of His boundaries, if you use them for His chief end, then those are pleasures that you can take hold of. A thousand years later, after the true preacher shows up, Jesus, the true creator, he looks at his followers in John 15 and he says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit apart from me. You can do nothing. See, if you're disconnected from God, no matter what kind of pleasures you are, they end up nothing. They end up in vanity. So when we come to the end of this sermon, we're coming to the end of this text. uh, My questions are, are you living your life apart from God? Is it really, you wouldn't say it out loud, but is your unspoken goal, verse 10, I just really what I really want is whatever my eyes desire, whatever my heart delights in. That's what I'm really chasing after, if I could be completely honest. And I really think if I could get those things, then I would be happy. The the man here from 3000 years ago screams out it's vanity. Don't don't live your life apart from God. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding. Seek Him first and then 
then all these things, all these good things will be added unto you. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a, um, a passage that for our culture um, it just hits the target. Because we've just been so conditioned by commercials, by ourselves, by our sin, that um, one more pleasure, one more time, one more grasp at that thing, a little bit more of these things, wealth, wine, women, work. If I could just have what this guy had, then I could be happy. If I could be the one who wins the lottery ticket, then I could be happy. And he says to us, it's, van- it's chasing after the wind. And so I, I pray that you would just burn that truth into our, our minds. Not so that we would walk away from those things, but that we could enjoy all those things with you and not apart from you. Lord, there's so many people in our city that live apart from you, chasing after worthless things. And so we pray now as we uh, take up an offering that whatever we use our money and our time and our talents for, it's not only to nourish our own soul, but it's to, to reach out into our community and be a blessing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.